Okay, my name is Valerie, again, and I'm a compulsive over and under eater. Okay. The typical format for me and for most of us is to talk about what it was like, what happened, and what it's like now. And um, what it was like is really important to me as a compulsive eater. And it took me many years to understand what it was actually like, because I thought what it was like was that around eight I started binge eating. But I was able to find out through uh, hypnotherapy, through meditation, quizzing my mother diligently (laughs) over the years, I was able to find out where things actually began for me. Um, And I'm really grateful to that, because when I was first traumatized it was at an age when I had no words and all I had was anxiety and fear and uh, a lot of crying and uh, I never could have put that together without staying abstinent and staying clear because when I am anxious I get cravings and the cravings lead me to either a higher power and you guys, or to eat. And so, um, when I was a baby, my mother got sick while um, with mastitis, breastfeeding me, and uh, had to stop abruptly. And my father had to feed me, and I was the firstborn. He didn't know what he was doing, so he yelled a lot. That's what people from Brooklyn often do. I see there's other children of people from Brooklyn in the room. And uh, there's a lot of us in Los Angeles. Um, And he yelled at me a lot. And and when I was in the program a few years, I had a memory of my father standing over me yelling. And so I asked my mother, "Did, did Daddy yell at me when I was like on the changing table? And she was stunned, but he did. And she came in and intervened and said, why are you yelling at the baby? And he explained all the reasons why he would be yelling at the baby. And by the way, I know many people who have yelled at their babies because they're freaking out. So I've gained some compassion over the years. But So I went about the next eight years of my life fairly normal until a teenage boy smacked me in the face with a croquet mallet when I was eight. And uh, I remember coming home from the hospital They were happy I didn't lose my eye, but nobody called me a victim of a crime. They said Valerie was accident prone. And so it was my fault. I'm clumsy. I guess I fell into the croquet mallet now that I think of it. And I remember that night I began eating. My mother asked me what I wanted for dinner, and I wanted dessert. And I had dessert while she sat at the kitchen table and cried, because that's what moms do after the trauma's over. And um, we moved to a new neighborhood. The Cubans pointed missiles at my neighborhood of D.C. And we had a new baby that year. And I'm getting over a trauma that was actually an accident. And I found toast. And God, I would make two pieces while I ate two pieces, while I made two pieces, while I ate two pieces, until I nearly passed out. If that had been a bottle, you would have just seen me in the gutter. 
but instead it was toast and I just got and I was growing I was really tall I was the tallest kid in my elementary school and so I was just big you know they never called me fat I, was, I just kept growing and growing but I was eating and eating and I would literally numb myself Monday through Friday as soon as I got home from school I also went from being very very smart to very very stupid after the head trauma but back then we didn't have MRIs and things or any occupational therapy to help deal with this head blow that I had received so I was just being belligerent and lazy and bad at math so I managed to kind of stumble my way through into high school where I found speed and you know these days they would just call it Adderall and they would give it to me and I would have focused on my math problems and I would have gotten through school but back then I figured it out on my own and it was great because not only could I do my homework so I could graduate from high school but I also quit eating so I got down to a normal body weight um, and then I really kind of left the food behind until I was 31 years old and I came in the front doors of our mothership program uh, the food and beverage program as we like to call it and um, and uh, from there I went out the door and into the Waffle House and I began eating and I was still smoking cigarettes though so I managed it pretty well for about the first year then I quit smoking and I gained 15 pounds in three weeks and my family they, they're not lightweights my family are obese people and if you don't want to be like your Aunt Sylvia don't eat that that was the message growing up don't be like Aunt Sylvia because Aunt Sylvia can never keep the weight off so I um, I kept it off until I, I, I gained it when I quit smoking and my sponsor brought me in here and I uh, and I began abstaining and how I did that was I found a sponsor and I didn't even know what she looked like I just heard her voice many of you may remember Madeline she was a therapist and um, I remember hearing her voice at Hill Street on Saturday morning coming from the front row um, and it was just a calming voice so I called her and a couple of other people and just said will you sponsor me and she called me back first so I, I said what do I do and she said call me in the morning and tell me what you're going to eat all day have breakfast lunch and dinner and optional snacks but just tell me the specifics of what you're going to eat and I thought that's ridiculous I don't eat breakfast and I don't eat lunch because once I start eating I will never stop so I was terrified of uh, she wants me to start eating in the morning you don't understand I just drink coffee until four and then I have one meal that lasts until I go to sleep it worked very well for me keeping me thin it actually did because I you know could binge on blueberries as well as I could binge on um, on uh, cookies and ice cream and uh, but she said I promise you if you do this it will it will change your life and I was willing because I was those 15 pounds scared the hell out of me and uh, so I called her the next morning and I said here's my breakfast here's my lunch here's my dinner and here's what I'm going to have for optional snacks and I ate it and I ate I think eight optional apples that day coming off the sugar oh I had a tummy ache from that but it was it was abstinent it wasn't sugar it wasn't the things I, I said I wouldn't eat and within three days I'm not I kid you not within three days the obsession to overeat left me 
and it was replaced by honesty. It was replaced by a connection to another person with the willingness to be honest. You know, change is hard. They say it takes 90 days of consistent behavior for a change to become what they call a second order change, a deep change. And I I truly felt that change immediately, but it took a long time, I think, to trust it. And that was uh, 28 years ago, two weeks ago. I celebrated my 28th birthday. And, uh, and for the first 10 or 15 years, it was pretty perfect. It was pretty perfect. I grew a lot. I learned a lot. And I basically had very few cravings. And then I got cravings again. And I got cravings again because I started taking back foods that I swore I would never take back. Like sharing a dessert with my husband. Little things. That my sponsor said, well, go ahead and see if you can do it. I mean, there's no, you know, it's not like you're drinking vodka or you're not drinking vodka. You're smoking a cigarette or you're not smoking a cigarette. We have a lot of gray areas in Overeaters Anonymous. And that gray area can be a really lovely thing for some people. And it can be an insane thing for other people. And I'm not here to judge anyone else's abstinence. But I know that mine is much better when it's basically back to the basics that I did when I got abstinent. And so I try not to do too much, um, what I call it, uh, experimentation. So I'm going to take a look. I actually made a couple of notes. So I'm going to talk about the higher power for a moment. Because when I got here and I heard the word God, it, I cringed. And so I'm speaking to all the 12-step heretics out there. Um, or wannabe heretics who are afraid of being heretical. It's okay to not say thee and thy. It's okay to make up your own prayers. I was told that it was a God of my own understanding, and my God of my own understanding doesn't involve the God word. It's a kind of unfolding. Uh, I sometimes call it the Tao of anxiety. (laughs) You know, it's the path unfolding is my higher power. And my path has unfolded very well, so long as I ask this path to hold me safely, to help me accept whatever comes down the pike at me or from within me while I'm on the path. And the path stays clear so long as I don't put things in my body to fuzz up my brain. Because it's very much a mind-body connection with what we eat here travels up here and makes neurotransmitters and then we feel it. It comes out as feelings. And my feelings when I got here were awful. And believe me, they've gotten awful at times in recovery. Not just because of food, but because of depression, anxiety, trauma recovery, uh, stuff, trauma. I was in a hurricane when I was seven years sober and watched the island of Kauai get ripped to shreds and the windows all blown out of the church we were in. It caused some nightmares, you know, caused a lot of cravings. The craving says, I don't want to be here. I want to go home. Home. I want to go home. That's my disease. But it's also my soul. Okay, my, my disease says, I want to go home. Give me cookies. <laughs> give, me, give me creamy things. You know, for some people, it's the salty, salty crunchy things. But for me, it was, it was mommy. It was creamy. It was milky. And I wanted to get back to the breast. 
I actually call my overeating and undereating the bad milk syndrome because my mother got sick. And while she said to me, you never got any bad milk, I got my dad yelling at me and, okay, that's bad milk. So I, I kept seeking out the bad milk in order to conquer it. Or I sought it so that it would soothe me. But whenever I took it in, it was poison. It wasn't soothing. And so I struggled back and forth and back and forth with how do I soothe myself? And, and it started out by writing the letters and putting them in the God box. For some reason, that word didn't bother me in terms of God because it sort of felt like a, a word joke. You know, I'm putting, I put stuff in a shoebox that, of all things, said Esprit on it. Because <laughs> that was the name of the shoe company. And uh, I used that box until it fell to shreds. I still have a God box at home. I still put stuff in it. And it works. What I put in, that, in there is a letter that says... Dear higher power, I am powerless over food, sugar, feelings, my husband, my work, my body image. Oh, my, the minute that I'm afraid, my body changes four sizes. You can't see it. I see it. And it's all right here. It's all, it appears like this ballooning belly that doesn't exist. It's called body dysmorphia. They actually have a name for it dysmorphic disorder isn't that beautiful body dysmorphic disorder they didn't have that name when I got abstinent but I'm impressed by it so I, I have BDD amongst other things I just parts of my body tend to look far larger to me than they do to other people I have patients that I work with often and they'll say but you're so tiny and I'm like thinking inside they're crazy how could they think I'm tiny when I I can't fit through the door in my mind sometimes. So this higher power has evolved. As I put things in the God box, they stopped being problems. After about 18 months of writing those letters, the box was full, I read them, and they were no longer problems. But about nine years ago now, I was in Japan, and I saw these little statues. They They looked like Buddha, but they were wearing red bibs and caps. And I thought, cool, Buddha with a bib. You know, but it looked like a baby. Okay, I have this baby thing, okay, because I was a baby when I got hurt. So I've always had this kind of baby thing. So, uh, you know, like teddy bears look like babies, you know. So I, uh, I asked the docent at this one uh, garden in Hiroshima, what was with Buddha in the bib? And she said, that's Jizo. Jizo is the Buddhist protector of women and children. And I started crying. And um, I got home from there and I went looking online for this Jizo guy and found out that they had statues. That, and I found an antiquity dealer and I bought one and I set it on a, shoe, on a, on a crate box in my, in my studio, covered it, the box with a sarong and made an altar. I'd never had an altar before. And I, uh, I sat and meditated with this Jizo, and the first words that came up were from my niece when she was tiny, getting her immunizations. And she saw the needle, and she went scurrying up my sister's body and into her hair and said, Mommy, hold the baby safe. And when I meditated with my Jizo statue, 
I heard Miriam's words, Mommy, hold the baby safe. And many of the statues I now have of Vegizo, he's holding an infant. So I started painting him. I started drawing him. I started understanding my Jizo nature. This thing that I was seeking all these years to hold that six-week-old baby, that eight-year-old trauma survivor safely in a world that to me is not safe. I do not have a God who has a plan for me, who planned for me that my first husband would get addicted to drugs and alcohol and that I'd leave him after three years of that. It did not plan for me that I would meet another husband. It did not plan for me that I would get a licensed, um, a license to practice on other people's minds in recovery. It didn't plan for me that I spent the first five years of recovery in college. I showed up in partnership with this force so that it could get me somehow awake enough to notice the Buddhas with bibs, awake enough to receive something other than cookies and creamy stuff, but to receive here, inside me, inside this body that I've been trying to get out of since I got into it, just to get out of the anxiety and the tension of being me and into a place of safety. Psychological safety. There's nothing outside of me. That's when I first read the ABCs and how it works. And they said probably no human power can restore us to sanity. I was so relieved. Because I had been trying to get everything and everybody to restore me to sanity. And nothing worked. And when I started looking for a higher power that I could do business with, it began to work. And it continues to work. It continues to unfold. And I literally, I, made, I showed one of my paintings to my husband. He goes, oh, you should make those into jewelry. And I said, oh, you don't want to know me as an entrepreneur. I, that's a whole other program and a whole other story. But um, since around, the, around five years in the program, I've been creating businesses. I already have a business. Thank you. I didn't need a second one. But I'm, I'm of the disease of it's not enough, I'm not enough, there's not enough. So be more, do more, get more, eat more, 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 more. Not enough more, not enough more. It's a very binary system. I'm either nothing or I'm everything. I'm nothing or I'm everything. More, more, more. So I didn't want to start another business. But, and so I said no. I laughed him off. And I showed a children's book I'd written to a a mentor of mine and he goes what an adorable little character you should make him into jewelry that's five minutes and uh, he said and my daughter is a designer and I can hook you up with her and she will introduce you to her fabricator just try it so when it came from stereo usually that's when I trust that maybe the higher power is talking to me is when I hear it from more than one source without polling if I'm polling, I'm in charge. The ego is doing its edging the higher power out thing, E-G-O. And uh, so I met with this fabricator, and we started making these jizos. And one day when I was painting the jizo, I, I used to have this cookie cutter that I would fill with paint, and then I would move it up the canvas until it disappeared. You know, so it was thicker and thicker and thinner and thinner until it vanished. And at the bottom in pencil I would write, somebody yelled and I went away. 
I didn't know what I was doing, guys. That was almost 25 years ago that I painted that. But what I was talking from was that infant voice. And that little cookie cutter that I filled with paint, I still had. So I pulled it out and I put it in the middle of my jizo and I filled it in. And it said, I'm chibi, which means little one in Japanese. And again, it was like, oh, all these breadcrumbs of my entire recovery were leading me back to this baby. This baby that I didn't know I had inside me, that needed to be held safe, that thought the toast would help. That was the first good idea. Then it thought that speed would help. It thought that men would help. It thought that career would help. When all it was was a force within me, lying dormant, waiting to be awakened. And when I allowed it in to hold me safely, which I still struggle with, I have to wake up in the morning, the head that wakes up on the pillow in the morning doesn't say, oh joy. (laughs) Am I allowed to cuss? Okay, good, because mine says, oh shit. It doesn't say, oh joy. It says, crap, another day. It's Groundhog Day. You know, it's just always another day, another What's going to traumatize me today? Because I'm not good with noise and I'm not good with bright lights, you know. And like if I'm in a yoga studio and had this kind of lights, I'd get up and leave. Because I can't lie down on my back with my eyes open and have these kind of lights come in on me. I feel like I'm being hit. Okay? Because I was hit. It was only once, but it it counted. And so I'm I'm a sensitive soul. So I start the morning before I open my eyes. I practice breathing and smiling. I breathe in, and on the exhale, I smile. Breathing in, I'm breathing in. Breathing out, I smile. Because one of my first Buddhist teachers said if he could breathe and smile while loading bodies onto trucks in Vietnam after, uh, after the Tet Offensive when there was a ceasefire and a bunch of people killed each other anyway, and the monks all had to come out and load the bodies on, Thich Nhat Hanh teach, taught, his teacher had said, If you can load bodies while breathing and smiling, you can be enlightened. And he said to a group of us 25 years ago, if you can treat patients in sunny Southern California, you can breathe and smile too. (laughs) Kind of guilted us into the breathing and smiling thing, but I've been doing it ever since. And I do it in the morning before I wake up fully because I wake up with a scowl on my face. I do not wake up looking forward to the day. It's just who I am. It's how I'm built. I'm half, I'm half Russian Jew. I'm waiting for a pogrom. I'm just waiting for the Cossacks to come in and kill my great-grandmother. Okay? That's what I'm waiting for. You know? Um, and, so, and so I show up. I show up and I don't eat through it. When, when uh, Diane called me last week to uh, speak, uh, I was grooming my horse. My horse is a miracle of this program. His name is Bodhi, Bodhisattva. I didn't know when I named him 18 years ago that I was on a path of a Bodhisattva, but I was. I was on a path of suffering and teaching. That's what we're all on the path of, is we suffer, and then in the third step we make a deal with the higher power that says, help me with my difficulties so that victory over them may bear witness to those I would help. I got home from the ranch that day, And by that night, we found out that my husband's mother was dead. And the next day, we were on a plane to Philadelphia, and we buried her. 
never been to a Jewish funeral before. That's my time. And I learned how to stick the shovel deep into the dirt and cover her coffin with everyone else. And uh, we came back from Philadelphia Tuesday night. Worked all day Wednesday. And I looked at my husband last night. I said, I'm going to speak at a meeting in the morning. He goes, oh, you don't want to do that. <laughs> I said, no, I don't, but I will. And it's coming through the eye of the needle each time that transforms me. I show up here, I'd be of service, I take phone calls, I make phone calls, and I don't, I don't eat boxes and bags and whole packages of things anymore. With that, I'll thank you all for listening. This is the time for questions only. There is no sharing at this meeting. If you need to share, please do so with any one of us after the meeting. Also, please remember that the opinions of the leader are my own and not those of Overeaters Anonymous as a whole. That's for sure. <clears throat> when asking questions, you need not identify yourself. Please remember if you ask a question, your voice may be audible on the OA podcast. Um, questions? Yeah. Um, Knowledge. The question is, uh, the 11 step states that we seek knowledge of God's will for us and the power to carry that out, or 12 step rather. And uh, what does that mean to me? <clears throat> my, my prayer is, uh, let it unfold and let me show up for it. Um, that's the power to carry it out, is that whatever the day presents. If I were a child in Haiti on a trash heap looking for food today, I have a very different orientation to what the day may look like. We're very fortunate that there are no bombs dropping over Los Angeles today like there are in the Middle East. So if bombs were to be dropping over Los Angeles, should we be all lined up and, and walked into an oven? I would hope that I would have the ability to face whatever it is that comes down the pike. I work in concert, however, with a higher power. I have a thousand choices a day. What I learned when I left my ex-husband was that the higher power lives on both sides of every equation. Okay? Maybe that's the answer to your question. Is the higher power lives on both sides of every question. Should I go? Should I stay? Should I go? Should I stay? Should I do this for a career or that for a career? When I was two and a half years in the program, I graduated with my bachelor's degree in English, and I was sure that I would be <clears throat> a poet in residence at a university wearing tweed. And uh, that, was, that was the higher power's will for me, because I was a published poet. I did spoken word in the 80s here in Los Angeles. And um, I was sure that was my path. And I didn't get into UC Irvine's writer's program. Six poets a year, hundreds and hundreds of applications. I was shocked. I got on my knees and I said to the universe, what would you have me do? Because I'm screwed. <laughs> what would you, I'm used to getting in places where I, where I ask, may I put, come in please? They say yes. They said no. And I wasn't wise enough to know I could reapply the next year. I was in a hurry to catch up because I'd missed my 20s. And, um, and it said call the Jung Institute. The voice inside me was clear enough to say call the Jung Institute and I did and said so what would I do to be a Jungian because I'd wanted to be one when I was a kid only you had to be an MD 
And I, with my science, lack of science skills and math skills, I could never have survived medical school. So um, I still read Jung all those years. But when I called, they said, you can go get a master's degree in clinical psychology, which my sponsor happened to have. And my other sponsor happened to be getting one. So they both said, oh, here's how you do it. And so it unfolded, and it unfolded without any doors slamming in my face. So clearly, if you will, when I was seeking the higher power's will for me, the road unfolded. I had to go through the open doors, and there were many scary ones, like um, oral presentations, which I would feel like I would die before I would give one. And I would come to meetings and I would share that I'm terrified of this or that. And people go, that's okay. Fear is no longer an excuse for not doing it. Report for duty. And the road keeps unfolding. And I must say, it's unfolded very nicely for me. But it was because I kept listening to the marching orders in my soul. Thanks. Yes. Thank you, Valerie, for this and other things. Um, I want to ask for what sounds like advice and feels like advice, but not about me, about the program and about sponsorship. Um, I, you are, you shared in this share uh, your courage and skill at uh, dealing with your own real traumas. I believe that everybody who walked into a 12-step room and stayed has real trauma. Uh, I work with people and speak with people who are not my sponsees as well, who just aren't willing to look their traumas in the face. And I believe they're not going to get better without that. Have you had that experience with people who won't look at it? And what do you do? <laughs> it's funny. We were just talking about that on the way over here this morning. The question is, um, if the mic didn't pick it up, is what do you do when you're sponsoring somebody who you know is avoiding their trauma? Uh, <clears throat> and yet they surely must have some. I, what I say to people is I say we were all born. Okay, we all came from a really comfortable, warm, fuzzy place where all of our needs were met out into a world that was noisy and bright. And if any, anything, we all have birth trauma of coming out of home and into the world. And sometimes it takes a really long time. First inventory, second inventory, no bad memories, you know. Uh, what I tell people is if you start to think it's time to go back out and eat, maybe that's the road not to take and to sit still and see what comes up. If we sit on the meditation cushion long enough, we begin to get images. We begin to get thoughts. Like I had the image of my, my dad yelling at me. Before that, all I had was the image of a baby swaddled inside what I realized was a target. You know, like the kind that you shoot in archery, only in the middle of the target wasn't a bullseye, it was a baby in swaddling. That's not a memory, but it was a memory of sorts. And a few years later, I was able to understand what it was. But I think that in meditation, we eventually come to know ourselves. But the individuation, the process of unfolding the unconscious, we're never finished, even when we're dead. That's not the, I don't think, the end of our coming to ourselves. So it may take a long time. I'm patient. I tell my patients that I bore them into hell. I just, if we have to tell the same stories over and over again and keep asking, what does this remind you of? What does this remind you of? 
I'm abandoned again. Really, what does that remind you of? And if after a year or two of, I don't know, I say, well, I don't know is what teenagers say. So we're going to try an adulthood answer, which is maybe it's related to things that I had no words for as a child. Just maybe. Try it on. Call them, I, ha- I call it the Columbo School of Psychotherapy. <laughs> you know, for any of you that are old enough to remember, Peter Falk is this dotty kind of detective who never went, aha, you're the one who did it, and here's how you did it. You go, I don't know, call me crazy, but maybe, maybe you were traumatized as a kid. You know, a lot of us had scary things happen. The teacher said something mean. Maybe you stood up when you should have sat down and somebody shamed you. I don't know, but maybe. And so I, I, I wear trauma like a really loose garment because the ego is there for a reason. It's there to keep the trauma down. It's there to avoid pain. And surrendering the ego is a lifetime's work. And so I'm really patient with my sponsees didn't used to be in the beginning. It was like, this is about your mother. It's not about food. That's what my first sponsor would say. <laughs> because of the breast. You know, I wrote this inventory before I got here. I wrote an inventory on hating my mother's breasts. It only took me another 10 years to understand why I hated her breasts. It wasn't because they were too big, which was my theory back then, you know, because of the dysmorphic thing. I was afraid, you know, that I'd wind up like her. Anyway, uh, I hope that answers your question. Yeah? You mentioned your uh, issues with anxiety and fear growing up and how that's related to your family of origin. How do your relationships with that family of origin stay or stay in recovery? My relationships with my family of origin and how do they look today, given all the anxiety and depression and stuff I had as a kid. When I first went back and hung out with them, it made me sick. I would feel nauseous. Uh, I stopped going back on holidays because holidays meant I would get the flu. I would be with them, and I would really, I would get a fever. Uh, there would be vomiting. There would be uh, and chills. I would get physically ill from the stress and tension of going. A couple times my back went out, you know, with tension. And uh, so I started going back at non-highly uh, charged times. No holidays. And uh, they were all back east, so it was simple. Then my father uh, died suddenly, so there was no goodbye, so I didn't have to deal with... He was the one I fought with all the time. But I had five years of recovery with him. And in those five years, what I learned how to say, which comes from another one of the programs, is, gosh, Daddy, maybe you're right. Cut my anxiety in half to think I didn't have to fight him. And he would say political things, and instead of arguing politics with him or whatever we would argue, I'd just go, wow, Daddy, that's interesting. Wow. And with my mother, who I, I battled with because I felt she never got me, truly it was that feeling of she didn't give me the milk, and I wanted to kill her for that. Um, but it came out as, you don't understand me, as one night in the middle of the night, because we talked late into the night, I said, Mom, all I wanted was for you to understand me. I always felt anxious that I wasn't understood. I just wanted to feel at home with you, and I never felt at home with you. And she said, Valerie, I have never understood you, and I never will. And I accepted her. In that moment, something happened where all the dominoes, instead of falling down, they all went whoop, back up. 
the 52 pickup cards all fell back into the deck and I went this is my job to accept them to understand rather than to be understood I do not have close relationships with my sisters they both are compulsive eaters and we we can't talk about anything because everything tends to have a raw nerve at the end of it so we, we talk about small things and we talk seldom and um, my family is here my family is in the program and uh, that's where the people are who I can trust to hear me when I speak and who get me and that's all I wanted was to feel like I'm at home you know we, we always talk here about welcome home so that that's uh, a warning for five more minutes yes in the back what does my abstinence look like today and how did I define it um, I started with a, a list of all the foods that set me off where I can't eat them like a lady that's my bottom line if I can't eat it like a lady I don't eat it if I eat it like a pig I don't eat it I've never binged on salmon and broccoli and brown rice in my life never I have never binged on <clears throat> green beans you know never binged on carrots never binged on apples since that first day <laughs> and um, cantaloupe I don't binge on cantaloupe so I'm honest with myself about what I eat and uh, what it does to my chemistry and that has changed over the years I had to go relatively gluten-free about five years ago because I had this constant pain where I guess my gallbladder and liver or something like that live and they ultrasounded it there's nothing wrong the doctor finally said why don't you give up wheat for a week and see what happens and I gave up wheat for a week even though I wasn't celiac positive and the pain went away my husband says it's a placebo but I give me placebo any day you know because I haven't been in pain since I gave up the wheat the only time I eat wheat and dairy is when I'm in Europe because it doesn't make me sick there it doesn't I don't know if it's processed differently or if I'm just relaxed whatever it is my body chemistry is what can I eat where I'm okay once in a blue moon I will still share a dessert with my husband but I've made a commitment with my sponsor that I will enjoy it it's contained it's not a whole thing of something in the house where I'm going to go back and fall down face down in it and start eating like I'm in a trough which is the way that I will eat certain foods and so I just do not keep them in the house they're part of a meal that's mostly protein and it's planned and it's real and it's it's got boundaries my, my, my abstinence is I do not eat the way I ate okay it's not necessarily three meals a day and snacks because some days require a little more grazing for me where I'll eat like half a breakfast and then half a breakfast like before and after working out I'll eat my lunch in two segments I don't necessarily have times where I only eat after four or five hours I've read all that stuff and it just feels I could restrict just as easily as I can overeat and I don't want a restrictive abstinence so I don't drive myself crazy but if I mistrust myself and my motives for eating I call somebody or I text them now and say I'm having this so I'm not a lie the trick is that I'm not a lie much more what they used to say there was an ad in the paper it's not what you're eating it's what's eating you right 
Yeah, it's what's eating you. And so I tell somebody what I'm eating and what's eating me. Thank you. I think we have time for one more. Yeah? Thank you very much, Valerie. Um, I just heard of you texting. What are your sort of go-to tools when something's going on other than if there's anything other than the God box? How do you sort of know you need to go down in there and how do you do that? How do I know when I need to go down inside myself when feelings come up? How do, you do it? how do I do it? What do I do? I breathe. I breathe. When I don't when I'm feeling something and it comes up as a craving or it comes up as an uncomfortable feeling, I parent it. I say, Oh honey. Like if I feel my back wants to go out, I'll say, There, there, sweetie. It's okay. What's going on? And it usually comes up as I want a hug, I want to be held. Um and if it's, I want a cookie, it's like, what do you really want? I want a hug. I want to be held. I want to know I'm good enough. I want to know that the mistake I just made is forgivable. What is it I need? What do I need? Not what do I want to eat, but what do I need? And what I need is usually soothing. And so I seek ways to soothe myself. I do a lot of yoga stretching. I have a yoga mat in my office. For years it was rolled up. Now it's just unrolled in front of the window. And I have all these little body tools that I use to stretch out like the tightness in the back of the leg, to open it up because when I'm tense, I'm not soothed. Binary again, tense, soothed. So if I'm tensing in whatever way, whether it's emotional racing or anxiety or anxiety in the body, I move toward what will soothe me right now. And it's usually breathing, stretching, Half a container of a little packet of emergency in water, you know, to just hydrate and breathe. And then I just try to stay curious. I don't jump to conclusions. One of my sponsors once taught me the best question to ask myself when, I'm, when I think I know something. Like I know I should eat or I know I should fill in the blank to make myself feel better. He would always ask, are you sure? And so I just ask myself over and over again, are you sure? It'll, the voice will go, well, it's this. You're, my husband didn't pick up the washcloth off of the counter again. And that's why I'm angry. Are you sure that's why you're angry? Well, actually, it's because the world isn't the way I want it to be. And then I can cry. Oh, it's not what I want. Well, are your needs met? Are you okay? Yeah, I'm okay. And the craving goes away, but it's parenting. It's, it's like parenting the inner child, I guess you could call it, or parenting the feelings. But it's compassion. And I tend to, like, oh, God. I went through some feelings a few weeks ago where I literally pictured my oldest dog is dying. And I, I pictured murdering him. And then I pictured killing my inner baby. I don't want to have those thoughts and feelings. Those are ugly. But my shadow is never finished being metabolized. And if I'm busy eating, I can't pick up the inner baby and swing her into a wall like in a Dostoevsky novel and say, there is no God and I'm out of here. Because that's, that's what that infant is doing when she's screaming is there is nothing. There is nothing that will comfort me. I am inconsolable. And it's my job to give compassion 
And even, uh, yeah, you're right. You can't be consoled. And sit with, I am inconsolable. That'll avoid depression. <laughs> That'll avoid anxiety. Because to me, it's just always trying to bust up through the, <coughs> the, the membrane of the ego and into consciousness. And the ego is going, cookie, <laughs> anything. You, you did that wrong. I hate that you did that. That car did that wrong. And it's, and it's when we can let it, the ego be more semi-permeable so that things can move through it and into consciousness then we expand. But we're always forever going to be coming up against that wall. I have a cartoon in my office of a stair. And there's a little dog with its face against the step. Smushed. And it says, face to face with the second step. <laughs> like, can't get to the third step is really where the anxiety comes up. And I had this one sponsor for a while who goes... That's great. You just realized you're insane. The good news is now you can be restored to sanity. And then you get that little puppy up onto the third step. And then the, every cell in the body goes, oh. Once had my blood drawn while I was anxious. I'd just come off the 405 freeway from, from, from Hermosa Beach to Santa Monica where the doctor was. And we looked at my blood live on a video screen and all of my cells were in these chains like little choo-choo trains and he goes oh this is not good and so we went in the other room and he did some acupuncture and then he said let's draw your blood again and we drew my blood and all my cells were floating around like this and he said that's what happens when you're tense is all your cells bunch up and when they bunch up they can't fight disease they can't fight the flu they can't do anything but tighten the muscles and no oxygen gets through because now you're a plank. And I came into this program, I was a plank. And I can still replank myself at any moment. And then it's about how do I then debrief and allow. Debrief and allow. That makes sense? Okay, is that about my time? Oh, it didn't. Thank you so much.